Hey everyone, welcome back to the Direct to Video Connoisseur podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and I am joined once again by screenwriter and uh, film or I guess film critic, we could say, uh, Tom Jolip. How are you, Tom? I'm very good, Matt. I'm pleased to be back on again. Thank you, Rosa. I was going to say because the, the the articles that you read on Flickering Myth, I, I don't know if, they, uh, if if that's probably the best way to describe it as, as film criticism. Um. Uh, I, well, you can call me whatever you like. Yeah. <laughs> I just write about <laughs> films, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quite easy going, really. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe cinephile because they're they're great, great kind of cinephile type articles. Yeah, no, that sounds good to me. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Perfect. And, and um, the the film that the um we we talked about before um um two episodes ago when you were on or two episodes that you were on ago uh, when darkness falls uh, looks like now it's available here in the states on peacock um and tubi um for, for free streaming yeah yeah it's been on just over a month on tubi and a couple of weeks now on peacock so yeah we're quite happy we got on on most of the the big platforms we wanted so it's doing quite well at the moment particularly on tubi so we, we're really pleased with the response so far yeah, and I'll say even like for me, um, going to IMDb because you know IMDb, it, it it's not always perfect. Like for example, I think IMDb says that um the film we're going to be talking about today, Drive, isn't available on anything here in the states, even though it's available on Tubi as well. Um, but I wanted to check and see, and it it, it did say it was. But when I started typing in when and uh, you know D D A, it was the first thing to pop up, which is a good sign too. Yeah. Um... We've been, yeah, not too bad, really, in terms of, like, the search relevance and results. Um, there's a couple of films with similar titles, but I think at the moment we're kind of just edging at the top. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's a very different movie from, from what we'll be talking about today, but I think it's a, it's one that everybody should check out, especially on Tubi, um, you know, if, if here in the States. Um, Peacock is one, too. I know um, for... Anybody who has uh, Comcast for their or Xfinity for their cable, which like we do, um, you know, Xfinity essentially or Comcast essentially owns the city of Philadelphia that I live in. But um, um, it, one, one thing that I think a lot of people do have Peacock for is because um, they they have all the Premier League games here in the in the, the U.S. So like I got a ping today because I'm an Arsenal fan that um, Arsenal's game was on at, at um, an hour ago. And so that's one way I think that a lot of people in America have Peacock, but also Tubi, everybody in America can have Tubi. And so, um, yeah, When Darkness Falls is definitely one that everybody should check out. And then also, too, I think when we did um, the episode um, a, a little while back, I think it was in, in August that we did, um, was, was it August or maybe it was the, August was when we did the um, the episode on uh, Roth Rocks, so actually it was a little bit before that. But um that episode, we don't really spoil anything in it. So if you're curious to know more about the film, you can go back into the archives for that podcast episode. Um, yeah, now now one of the other things, um, uh, uh, Tom, that you do is you, you talk about, uh, or you know, some of the, the, the reviews that you do or the, the articles you do for Flickering Myth. Um, one recent one that you had uh, was about underrated action stars, which I think actually kind of, Works perfect for uh, for what we're going to be talking about today because the very first one that you mentioned was Mark DeCascos. Yeah, yeah, I've always found him just to be really sort of underrated. I think he's one of those that never quite got the break that he deserved, and you know, a few films didn't quite catch on like they should have done. Um, you know, things like uh, Crying Freeman, which for some for some reason or another never got a proper release in the US. 
Um, I think it eventually came around and ended up on streaming somewhere, but you know, sort of quietly put on there somewhere. But for quite a while, it just had no US release, and that really kind of could that could have been a big breakout for him, I think. And it was a little bit similar with quite a few of the other ones he did, sort of early on in his career. Yeah, because you look at those years, right? If you look at '94 and '95, it's almost kind of like a a, a, a sort of a double whammy in, in a way. It actually almost '93 as well with with only the strong. It's like he has only the strong in '93 that I think did get a theatrical release in the states, and you know it was meant to in part you know uh, introduce capoeira to, to American audiences, and it was it was a hit, but not the hit that you want. And then Double Dragon, you know, I think he was <clears throat> almost like thinking this could be something he could you know, a, a franchise, um, you know, based on, yeah. a, on a major video game. And that movie was just completely, you know, sauteed <laughs> in wrong sauce. I mean, it's just, you know, it was like, didn't know if it wanted to be a kid's movie, if it wanted to be an action yeah. film. And and I think that really hurt him because, it, and it seems like that happens for a lot of, of these guys is that they think they're going to get that big break and the movie ends up being a dud. Um, and and that, that's through no fault of his because he was fantastic in it. Um, and then, like you said, Crying Freeman, which, um, you know, com- Combined with the film War About the Talk UK, I think just, you know, two just absolutely fantastic movies. And like you said, not released here in the States, which I don't know if maybe they, they looked at it and thought maybe it was too, there was something too offbeat about it for American audiences. I think that's always one of those things, I think, that um, distributors, uh, you know, uh, uh, movie houses, they have a, a very cynical sense of what Americans are willing to, to watch. Um, yeah. And, and Crying Freeman might have been a victim of that. I can't remember exactly, but I do think there was some there was some sort of studio politics involved, um, you know, issues with rights and things about you know getting the the release in the states. So there was you know that kind of studio politics was holding it back slightly, and then it you know they never sort of came around to you know getting a good release for it. Yeah, because I remember for a while, I don't even think it was available on VHS here in the States. I think it was almost like, you know, I, I could be wrong about that, but I, I thought you almost had to like get like a, a region-free copy or something like that. Yeah, sort of region-free or back then, I know there was a few bootlegs that used to go around of it, um, usually from sort of manga fans who would be actively seeking that film. But yeah, it just took ages and even now that it is available on a couple of streaming platforms from well last i heard anyway um you know there was no big announcement or fanfare it just came out basically and just was plonked on there and left for people to sort of discover by accident yeah i, I think you know i mean you, you think about like that i think I, I i it's not showing up on imdb as being available on tubi but i thought it was maybe it was for a period of time i think that's like finally available streaming i think a lot of people also torrented it um, when when torrenting became a thing. Um, you know, downloading. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah. That was especially for American audience. I think that's how they, they started to to get it. But it is one of those ones. I think that it's it you know it definitely needs that kind of nice release that has the, all the bells and whistles. I mean, I think for for DeCascos, beyond the the performance that he has in it, I think it has a special significance because he met his wife uh, on on that film as well. Yeah, definitely. I think they got a good chemistry in the film, and obviously that did end up translating to real life. Um, it was one of those, I discovered that one and Drive pretty much within a few weeks, and that was kind of like my introduction to Dacascos. Um, 
I think watching on like satellite TV back in 99 or something like that. Um, and I discovered one, uh, I discovered Drive, and then my brother discovered Crying Freeman. We're both like, oh, you've got to see this film, you've got to see this guy in this film. And we're sort of cross-referencing and both discover that it's the same guy. Um, so, yeah, it just he, he did stand out, I think, in, amongst that pack um, of those kind of rising action stars at the time. Yeah, so so for me, I you know I, I was introduced to him in um, uh, Only the Strong. I mean, I remember that film being in the theater. Didn't have a big theatrical release, uh, but I I remember it being out. And and then of course Double Dragon came soon after. And of course Double Dragon was one of those ones where it's like, I think when that film finally came out, I I, I always kind of forget that it came out in '94. And I want to say by that time most of us who had played that video game in the late 80s, we'd almost sort of like aged out of, <laughs> of that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And so then it was like, who is this movie targeted for? Because it was, you know, I mean, I was, I guess, 94, I would have been 15. Um, you know, that idea of making a movie for uh, someone who was a fan of Double Dragon, you know, probably something R-rated would have been more in line with, with who was watching it at that time. But yeah, it was it was one of those ones that was like, okay, you know, I, I, I accepted how good DeCascos was, but the whole thing was just so ridiculous that it was almost like I didn't really, you know, it, it didn't really stick, you know, his, his abilities and it didn't stick. And then I guess the next one after Only the Strong and Double Dragon would have been the um, the Crow uh, Theory to Heaven TV series. Um, that's like when I next uh, catch up with him. And I think... I almost feel like that one almost, I don't want to say typecast him here in the States, but it was almost like this idea that he was a poor man's Brandon Lee when that really wasn't who he was. We, you know, obviously, you know, seeing these, the movie, you know, like Drive that we're going to talk about, Crying Freeman, his his skills were really fantastic on his own. I mean, he's a fantastic star on it in his own right, but I, I wonder in American audiences if there was a sense of like, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do with this guy? He just looks, you know, he's, you know, we don't have Brandon Lee anymore, so we're going to use Dacascos or something. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Yeah, I mean, I think there were elements of that. I think um, it's just one of those things. I mean, if you have success in like a syndicated show, that can take you quite away as well. And then obviously The Crow, I think it was just one season in the end. So he didn't have much luck on TV either. I think the the thing with Double Dragon... That was right at the beginning of the whole video game, the sort of video game movie thing, um, before it kind of went on this long run of people making these films that were never really that good. Um, so, you know, they were sort of testing the waters along with the Super Mario Brothers film. Um, and there was often, you know, very weird crosses in tones and things like that, like you said. Um, but I do think one thing that Sheldon Lettich said was because Dacascos was off filming Double Dragon around about the time that they were pushing Only the Strong, he wasn't available for sort of, you know, promotion and things like that. So he couldn't really put his face out there and connect it with the film, which sort of had a detrimental effect on on Only the Strong. So he's kind of off doing Double Dragon. Um, he's got no, no fault of his own, really, but he's got to kind of leave only the strong behind. And then, you know, that kind of affects the the opening sort of box office a little bit. Um, 
and then obviously double dragon doesn't work out either so it's a little bit unfortunate really yeah that's interesting because right when we, when we were talking about cynthia rothrock it was a similar thing where like she was you know uh making you know the, the golden harvest films and then she talks to stallone about this opportunity to make a movie with him and so she kind of gets out of that contract with golden harvest and she probably was turning down i mean i would i would have to think she was turning down potential projects with like maybe like a pm or somebody like that because she only did the one with them and of course that film never works out and so then it's sort of like like you said has that, that knock-on effect of she doesn't do the movie with with stallone that would have been the break for her but she also doesn't do anything else to, to um, in that sense and i think you're right because only the strong was one that like you know action fans all kind of know like I, I remember being on tv a lot um but you're right that like it it need you know it didn't have like the cascos out there um you know uh, selling it um and i never really put those two together that it, the reason why he wasn't out there selling is he was doing double dragon which of course yeah didn't end up working out um so yeah it, it's interesting how that sort of you know so so even like only the strong sort of had a knock on you know the, the double dragon sort of had a knock-on effect on only the strong and Maybe too with with crying Freeman that that because he was it, it, Double Dragon didn't do as well, there wasn't an impetus to have more Mark DeCasco's films in America. And if they thought crying Freeman was too off for American audiences, they weren't gonna uh, bother with it. Yeah, I think that that's certainly the case. I think when if you start early and you start off with a with a flop, I guess it's difficult to kind of recover from that. And something like Double Dragon kind of. I'm not even sure if it went theatrical in the end. Um, it might have done in the States, but in I think in the UK it went straight to video. Um, and given they probably spent a reasonable amount of money on it, they were probably intending it, you know, for it to be a bit, bit bigger a release, really. Yeah, I mean, according to IMDb, it had a, a budget of about 7.8 million, which actually, for a 90s attempt at a blockbuster, that's not a lot, but it's also, you know, from 90s, you know, money standpoint, that's it's, it's more, but yeah, it grossed 2.3 million worldwide. So it didn't, it didn't even make a third of its budget back. Uh, so, you know, that's that's it right there. And but also too, I think the plan with a movie like that is that that's going to be the first of many Double Dragon movies that uh, will will be in the theater. And so when it's a dud like that, that's it. Kind of just kills the whole thing. And you're right. Like it, it um, I think it, it sort of put it in a place where where Cascos, I think he was he was riding on that. He, you know, he had, I guess his manager had had pushed that as the the big one for him, and and it didn't work. I mean, I think another one um, that you know, who's unsung, thinking of uh, Gary Daniels. I think in his case, it was Fist of the North Star that he had, you know, put all his eggs in that basket. And it didn't work out, and I think it wasn't the movie he thought it was going to be too. And he it was probably the same thing with Double Dragon. I'm sure. You know, I wonder if Cascos was expecting that to be something along the lines of. Um, you know, only the strong or some of the other you know action films that he'd done and when it turns out it's not that um you know you probably see the picture on the screen and think oh boy <laughs> this is you know we're in trouble yeah i i think you know that's quite common in the movie business um it was just an interesting time with you know the sort of manga adaptations and all these video games and they kind of have certain similarities as well um and nothing was quite working really so i think when super mario brothers sort of bombed a little bit that probably put a lot of this you know the studios on edge so maybe 
the studio behind Double Dragon probably held back a little bit and thought, well, maybe we don't want to release it on quite so many screens. We'll just keep it a little bit smaller and see how we do. It almost yeah. becomes like damage limitation. Right, right. And it's interesting because if you think of, you look at, you know, in the early 2000s, right, we get the first Resident Evil movie um, with Mila Jovovich and Michelle Rodriguez. And that movie is an R-rated movie. And it's almost like, I guess it maybe took these movies for like, and then I guess maybe two of the other things, I guess, you know, I never really thought of before, but the people making these um, video game movies, they probably would have been like older, you know, maybe maybe older baby boomers who just understand video games as something kids play and didn't really yeah. think about the fact that, yes, they started out as things for kids because that's when they were first made, but those kids got older and still were interested in the games or still interested in the the ideas and the stories and so they could market these these video game based movies to adults and you know not that you know resident evil is like the, the greatest thing but it, it's it definitely from a, a, an action franchise i mean it definitely did much better than than double dragon i mean it, they managed to get multiple films out of it and i guess what they were expecting double dragon to be had they made double dragon maybe an r-rated movie with the cast ghost just sort of unleashed as an action star maybe you know you don't get scott wolf as the the other but maybe another you know, um, martial artist to play the other part. Um, I think, you know, maybe you, they would have had something there, uh, but instead, yeah, it was, you know, completely marketed and made the wrong way. But that seemed to be a thing in the 90s with um, uh, um, uh, video game movies, comic book movies. It just seemed like there's this idea of like, who do we market these things to? And it's almost like, you know, the studio's got a better sense of it as, as the 2000s went on that let's like make these movies for adults. And if, if kids are able to watch them, that's fine. But, you know, unfortunately for Dacascos, right, you know, he was, he came, he came out at an age when, when that wasn't, you know, Mila Jovovich, you know, she's, you know, maybe 10 years younger than him. And she gets the, the benefit of coming around at a time when Hollywood had kind of figured it out. Yeah. And I think, you know, by then video games had been a little bit more sophisticated and you had sort of, you had the little, you know, movie snippets and openings and FMVs in the video games. So they almost translate a little bit better to cinema. I might, I know that, you know, her film pretty much ignored the original game, but, you know, everyone was kind of intrigued. I don't know if you remember the original Resident Evil. There was like quite a cinematic opening on it. So that always had a sense that it could translate well to a film. And I think that's what brought people in got them quite interested in in the film yeah because i think that was one of the first ones to really like i think that that one maybe grand theft auto 3 they were some of the first ones to really take advantage of what the playstation 2 could do yeah yeah i think so i mean and it's easier to kind of translate those kind of ideas and those visuals to a film than it is you know like a 2d you know super mario game yeah, and I, and I mean, it's interesting because Double Dragon, right, you feel like Double Dragon should have been a no-brainer because they could have just remade the Warriors and, you know, um, and, and I think it would have it worked in that sense, but they were like, well, no, it's, it's a kid's game, which, to be honest, like, thinking about it as a kid's <laughs> game, I mean, I remember playing it, I mean, I'm, like, picking up baseball bats and, and whips and, and smacking people with them and everything. Um, it wasn't like it was that nice of a game, um, it's so... It, it you know maybe that was the other part of it too is maybe they they didn't you know they didn't know how to to manage that that you know that they didn't know understand the game enough and 
know that there it, it wasn't probably going to be something you could make for kids um but yeah it, super mario is another one where it was like that game is just sort of so all over the place i mean he eats mushrooms and gets bigger you know um it's yeah how do you make that into a game that works when um it's so surreal and so many you know uh, it's almost like trying to make alice in wonderland or something like that yeah i mean in both cases they kind of have to take big liberties and try and make a a film i guess they went for the quirky route and there was quite a lot of films during that era that was sort of weird and quirky and kind of like futuristic um you know adaptations like johnny mnemonic and tank girl and things like that they always have this sort of similarities with bright colors and very strange mixes in tone and design yeah because that's one i i Tank Girl's always been one of my favorite comic book adaptations, but I think when I looked at the um, the IMDb trivia, I think Lori Petty wanted nothing to do with it. She wanted to distance herself from it. And there are some <laughs> weird things. Though. We have Iggy Pop as, like, what was he, like a, 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 a some kind of animal hybrid person thing. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things going on in that movie. Or maybe I'm thinking of uh, Ice-T was the animal hybrid person, and Iggy Pop was the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, I know Ice-T was, yeah. Yeah. And he played a sort of similar character in that than he did that he did in Johnny Mnemonic as well. Yeah, and it, you make a great point too because it, in the '90s there was that that there there were a lot of kind of big movies. It was almost like I think there was a even like the Batman movies. You know, thinking about what those looked like at that time with Joel Schumacher, it's like you have like Batman Returns in in '93 that is sort of Tim Burton's last, you know, film of that, and it's like really dark. You've got the the penguin with his like really dark look to him. And anytime there's any color in it, it's really just meant to be a strong contrast to the darkness that's there. And then you get that next film where it's like, even like the two face that you have with, uh, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, where the, the side that's supposed to be disfigured is all like pink and, and colorful. Um, and you know, the, 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 the Riddler is a very colorful character as well. And it's a, a very different kind of movie compared to what, you know, what we had seen before that. And I think that's, a, I never really thought of that before that you kind of, yeah, all of those. I mean, yeah, Batman Forever is another one thinking about like with um, uh, or sorry, Batman and Robin, where you've got like Poison Ivy, who's this bright green, and um, uh, Mr. Freeze, who's this bright light blue color. But yeah, movies sort of had that that kind of vibe to them, and it's uh, I I guess it took getting into the 2000s, and they started to transition into different kind of comic book movies, and I guess the, you know the the video game movie kept followed suit, or was it was in the same vein. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's just one of those things where you get these trends and they seem to sort of drift through through the movie industry. Um, it just seems weird that it was all these films that never quite managed to find an audience. Um, aside from the Batman films, obviously, they did a little bit better. Um, but they just couldn't really capture, uh, you know, a whole audience. I think they were trying to put too much into it, too much colour, too much everything, you know, too many ideas. And they were a little bit messy, but I guess in time, that's almost become a little bit more popular, that kind of film and lots of colour again. So, you know, people look back and they kind of reappraise things like Johnny Mnemonic and Tank Girl. And I know that, you know, Super Mario Brothers is a bit of a cult film now as well. Yeah, and I wonder too, I don't know if this is something that ever comes up i guess you know for you when you're writing the the, the screenplays um you know the, the movies themselves like when they, they're making the movies um 
that's a, a different part of it. But I know um, one of the trends in, in, in filmmaking has been to make the films like less colorful and kind of more like sort of this sort of washed out sort of like, I don't know if gray is the right term, but sort of like a, a darker feel because, you know, but, um, and I don't know if this is the same in England, but here in the United States, you know, TV advertising, they kind of use the digital spectrum to just make these really bright, colorful things. And it's almost like filmmakers don't want anything to do with bright, colorful advertising. Um, and it is interesting to see that maybe, you know, some filmmakers are starting to go back and say like, okay, it doesn't really matter what uh, what, what advertisers are doing in America. I'm just going to make my movie and, and not try to be so above that or just make the movie I want to make. Yeah, I do think there's, a, there's an element of that, yeah. Um, there's a few, you know, a few trends at the moment. So very sort of colourful films are kind of back in again. But then you've also got those sort of films and TV shows that are quite, as you say, quite dark and not even necessarily just dark. It's more like they sort of lower the contrast and, it's, you know, the brightness and it's a little bit dim. Um and that seems to be a bit of a weird trend, really, where everything looks, yeah, like a little bit grey and a little bit, you know, flat. So I do, I, I would prefer a bit more colour myself than just having kind of like one tone. Yeah, because, yeah, I th you know, um, I, I read an article about this recently because um, you know, they released a new Dexter series, or I guess they, they kind of re you know, brought Dexter back and they were comparing what Dexter looks like now, um, you know, the version now versus what, they had made in the in the late 2000s and the contrast of how much brighter that Dexter was compared to this one. And yeah, I mean, I guess part of it is like they want the, the film to have the same lighting. I guess it's easier to, to edit it if it's all the same, but there is that that pull. I mean, I think, you know, just in contrasting, I think of, um you know, the film that 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 uh, that you made um, when darkness falls, the one that we talked about before, that one is very kind of open and lit, especially in the daytime scenes. And it makes for a really fantastic contrast for when the night scenes come. Um, it, it it has a really great effect there. And so I think, you know, the more filmmakers start to do that, I think it, it can really, really open the film up and, and give it uh, vibes that it, it you know, that, that it could definitely use. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was something that we were quite keen to do because I think sometimes it's in the post-production process with grading and things like that, that sometimes it goes a little bit too far. And I think, you know, sometimes you can just take everything a little bit too much, you know, into this sort of flat space where it's almost, you know, everything's a little bit kind of mono, monotone, mon monochrome. Um, and, you know, they seem to take a lot of shadow out as well. So you don't get so much of that kind of noirish lighting anymore where, you know, someone can have half their face in shadow. They sort of want to get everything a little bit faded in shadow. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I was talking with, um, but Ty have come up with reviews about the, the Bruce Willis movies, and we were joking that maybe, like, they, you know, are able to use the, that sort of that coloring thing to be able to kind of, you know, that, that, you know, those grading techniques to be able to just splice Bruce Willis into scenes um, if he uh, if it isn't shooting at the same time. That like, okay, talking to Leon in one film and they're sitting next to each other, that they can kind of use that old technique of when somebody's talking to themselves or something, you know, in an old TV show. But using the grading technique, you don't even notice that they, um, you're, you're using grading as, a, as, a, as a, a tool, you don't even notice that they were shot at two different times, um, that they're just put in together. And and I guess that's part of it with the low budget films. It's a, it's a great way to I guess you know 
uh, make make do with certain budgetary constraints. But it is, you know, from a from a, a, a film standpoint and seeing it in so much, or, or with TV, where especially nowadays, because TV seems to be the medium where people are taking more chances. It seems like movies are the big tent uh, projects, and TV are the ones that have like the, the the limited audiences, or they're made for a smaller potential audience. That you're seeing it seem it seems like it's more there, but yeah, it is interesting now that, like you said, that especially with um you know in, advancements and things like Blu-ray, that some of these movies are being looked at again. I mean, even Double Dragons one has been looked at again. I don't think anybody's been able to pull, <laughs> been able to like <laughs> make a case for it, which I think is probably a good thing. But I, I mean, I think the case that they make for it is the Cascos is is great martial arts in it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those. I think he's always come off quite well in that one. Um, as the stronger of the two leads. I mean, Scott Wolf was kind of like the the bigger name back then from a lot of the stuff he'd done in TV, but he's just not suited to the role. And I think it was just miscast, you know, purely to kind of cash in on his fame at the time. Um, but I, I do know that, you know, people do consider it an enjoyable kind of so bad it's good kind of film now. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And it's funny, too, with Scott Wolf. He's another one that you think about maybe he, he came along 10 years too early because now it seems like a lot of uh, male leads who played his kind of male lead on a TV show, they're now, you know, they, they kind of just sort of slap a beard on them and, and have them grimace or snarl some and give them these sort of action leads and do like kind of the, the born identity trick, right, where you can splice the film up and make it look like they know, you know, a lot of great martial arts and, uh, they're, they're, they're an action league and, you know, they kind of walk around with their gun and whatever, like, you know, they go look at Jesse Metcalf or Ryan Phillippe or some of those, those stars that almost like he, you know, it, it's kind of a, kind of funny to imagine him in a similar role, maybe in a Bruce Willis film or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he probably could have done, I think, um, one, of, I think it might've been one of the recent Bruce Willis films that had, um, uh, Zach Morris from yeah. Saved by the Bell. Right, precious cargo. That was, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark Paul Gosselaar, that's his name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and it just seems to be this idea of like, just give them a beard and have them. I mean, at least Mark Paul Gosselaar's was, he was a little bit of a roguish thief kind of character at the beginning of the movie. Um, but then as the movie goes on, he just becomes too grizzled and too angry. And he's just grimacing and snarling the whole time with his beard. And uh, that's the character he plays. And um, yeah, it just seems like you, you just, they just kind of do that with all of these ones. And so, I think that's another thing too, as we talk about Dacascos a little bit more, is that I think it's another area where Dacascos loses out a bit, is that there's a mindset of, well, why would we have this guy Dacascos who people only really, maybe, you know, like in the States, people probably only know him from uh, the Iron Chef America show that he was the host on. Um, they don't, you know, know him beyond that. And it's like, well, why would we get him when everybody knows, you know, Jesse Metcalf from, you know, whatever movies that he did or, you know, whoever, you know, whatever the actor is, you know, Mark Paul Gossler, right? Everybody knows him from Saved by the Bell. We'll put him on the cover and 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 we can edit it enough to make him look the part of an action lead. Uh, and it's almost like, yeah, we don't get enough of DeCascos, which it may be too from DeCascos' mindset. He doesn't want to do these movies where there probably isn't a great action director. Or there isn't even a action director and the, the martial arts are probably not that, that great. Um, he might have to even choreograph the whole thing. So but I almost kind of feel like he loses out a bit again as a result of the, that that trend in direct video. Yeah, I think so. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult 
I think, for casting agents to sort of pinpoint where you would put him as well. He's not the sort of conventional hero type because I think he's got a bit more of a kind of vulnerability than your standard, you know, like a Bruce Willis or Steven Seagal type of role. And they tend to be this sort of, you know, rugged and stern kind of very stoic roles where they're, you know, they're playing off that Clint Eastwood archetype. Um, And that tends to be what most kind of action leading roles tend to be now. Or they're a bit kind of snarky and sarcastic. And maybe the sort of casting agents don't really think of him in that way. Um, And again, maybe not intense enough as a villain. Yeah, I mean, there's an earnestness to his uh, performances that I think you're right. Like it's it's. You, you, it's hard to do like grizzled, um, you know. I think the closest I think was one night in Bangkok that he did with um, with with Chaos. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and and the fascinating thing about that role for me wasn't just that you know he he plays sort of this. It, you're right. Like he, he, even though he's playing this this sort of darker like out for revenge character, there is the vulnerability there that like he's he he, he kind of makes the part a little bit deeper than just him out there you know getting revenge. That he's, you know, he's doing it for a reason, and he he has uh, a sort of a an emotional sensibility to him that's a little different, which I think is why 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 you know um, uh, chaos one likes to work with him because he likes heroes like that. Uh, but you're right; it's like a little bit different than what uh, American what what people try to sell in American audiences, and you know, and again, like from a villain standpoint too, it's like he's almost like too likable that when he plays a villain, I mean, he plays a great villain. I think he plays a, a great baddie, but... Yeah, he does, yeah. Yeah, there's almost something sympathetic about him that you almost don't want to see him as a baddie or something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, he... Because he's got those interesting aspects to um, how he is as a performer, and I, I think that probably stems from how he is as a person as well, um, I think it's just... He's an interesting performer in this genre, and I don't think he's necessarily always given the chance to show that. It's one of those things where, you know, studios just just want, maybe they just want certain archetypes and he doesn't quite fit into those. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point too. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things too is in in going back to... uh, um, uh, to one night in Bangkok, you know, thinking about not, you know, the archetype kind of thing. You know, he's playing a character that's 10 years older than him when most action leads that we see now are older than DeCascos playing people that are maybe 10 years younger in the film. And even just that idea that I'm going to play somebody who's older and sort of get into the character that way, uh, it's not really something that, that, you know, filmmakers, like you said, that when, they, when they're making, especially direct-to-video action films, they want sort of the rugged lead who can just get in there and just be this rugged lead who, um, yeah, he's, he's going to be younger. I mean, you know, I think Frank Grill is another one who's like about three years younger than him who's starting to get more roles in, in direct-to-video. And I don't think he has anywhere near like the, the level of skill that, that, that DeCascos does. But I think from a direct-to-video marketing standpoint, they feel like Grillo is someone they can slap on the cover and, you know, get the sort of the feel that they want um, as his lead, whereas... The Cascos is going to be maybe doing these more introspective parts with someone like Chaos, and um, again, they, they you know, uh, American distributors don't know how to market those kinds of films. I think. Yeah, I think that's it, really. I mean, 
those are the kind of characters I would find more interesting um, for myself. I think maybe that's why he's always done a little bit better in Europe. Um, and, you know, occasionally in Asia as well. He's never really quite taken off in the UK, but I think it's because we tend to sort of follow American trends to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. I always think about like the difference between like Westerns in America versus Westerns in Europe, where it seems like a lot of European, like the, the, the Europeans like the, the idea of the Western as being this almost like this vast, like uncivilized space because they've, you know, they've, they've been living in civilization in Europe for so many, you know, for, for centuries that this idea that there's this sort of untamed space out there that they want to sort of relish it and they have heroes that sort of come out of this untamed space and are more, um, yeah, like they're, they're, they're less one note and they're kind of more introspective in some ways or they, there's not always the black and white, whereas the American Western was always like the sort of black and white, like they're taming the lawlessness in a way that you get these heroes, these sort of grizzled heroes like Chuck Connor, the Rifleman, you know, those kind of characters that come in and just sort of, tame everything and, and make everything ordered and, 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 and right. And I think that's one of the things about the Cascos is he doesn't come into a movie as, as someone who's ordered and right. He comes into a movie as someone who, yeah, who's, who's more introspective, who, like you said, has, has vulnerabilities that I think you, you're right. It might play better in Europe than in America where everybody wants to sort of black and white at, which again, I say everybody in America, I think, Part of it is, I think, again, distributors always have this sort of cynical sense of what Americans will watch. Um, and it'd be interesting, yeah. you know, if we're given the chance, what what we would actually watch or not watch. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the case, really. I think um, he's just got this kind of everyman quality and this kind of enigmatic side that it makes him kind of interesting to watch. But he's never really had the, the wide audience he kind of deserves to do that. And when he's had slightly bigger films like um, Cradle to the Grave, where he played the villain, he's kind of given a very kind of two-dimensional villain to play in that. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't really get the, you know, the kind of the chance to shine that much. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, as we sort of transition to the film we're going to talk about here, Drive, which is, I think, I think, you know, just talking about his movies, I think this one for me, it's right up there with uh, Crying Freeman, though it's interesting because I, I looked at my review of it and I wasn't as kind of as high on it as I was, you know, watching it again for our conversation. And I wonder if maybe there's just maybe I just didn't watching too much or maybe <laughs> I wasn't paying attention because, um, you know, the martial arts skill is just there on a different level. And again, I wonder if there's a sense that American audiences don't like that kind of that theatrical spectacle of, of martial arts and that, you know, we'd rather just, I guess, somebody shooting a bunch of people or something. But it, it, the, the, the visuals and, the, and the, the quality that the, the Cascos brings to this role is such like another level that it is kind of a shame that he didn't get to do this. And maybe and or maybe it isn't a shame because maybe Hollywood would have, you know, dumbed it down or something like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the film was. Um... A little bit ahead of its time really i think in terms of what it did in bringing hong kong style fights to you know american cinema it was you know it was ahead of rush hour and even rush hour was kind of watered down compared to what jackie chan would normally do in hong kong so there was just this sense that it was maybe a little bit too soon and then again they had problems with you know producers and distributors 
that kind of affected the release and it didn't really get the platforms it deserved, um, which is a shame. It should have had a wider audience. And I think there was a lot of um, potential for, although they were very kind of keen to do a sequel at the time, but, you know, it just never came about get, getting delayed and delayed and never really got off the ground. Yeah, and, and I can see too from DeCascos' standpoint that this is a movie that he probably looks at in contrast to Double Dragon and says, wow, this is like amazing. You know, like we did it. We did everything we set yeah. out to do in this film. And it looks like it only got theatrical releases, I think, in Japan and the Philippines. And, you know, probably that deflation, you know, that sort of deflating feeling of realizing like this isn't going to get released theatrically in the U.S., um, you know, I don't know, in, in the late 90s, you know, I start to think, because, you know, it was, we were still at a point there, I think Titanic hadn't really, at least in America, hadn't turned the, the, the film industry into this search for more big tent projects. I think you still could have gotten a movie like this, a theatrical release in America, and had it, you know, had audiences want to see it. But, you know, I think for him, I mean, I, I have to imagine he was excited about what this because i mean you, you watch it and there's no way to not look at it and think like this is going to be a huge hit but it, then it doesn't uh doesn't get the, the release and i guess also too thinking about what was big at that time i mean con air is another movie that was huge at that time and this is so different from a con air that was in the theater yeah definitely i think i think part part of it maybe was that when they were making it the producers probably just had in mind right this is going to be you know an hbo special or something like that so they were probably they were they probably weren't thinking of a wider kind of release and you know being broader they were probably just you know happy to to some extent let the director kind of get on with it um and i think you know between director steve wang and the kind of i think the alpha stunt team they were called they, they were kind of infamous at the time for working on power rangers and a few other things um and they really kind of exceeded probably what they set out to do because i think it is a low budget film and you know what they deliver is really good for the budget and they just seem to nail every element so you know as well as the action being really sort of amazing and you know way ahead of its time in in you know in an american sense um you know, they know the sort of the buddy cop side of it as well, the, you know, the the comedy. Yeah, it, it had a lot of those elements. And I, I think you're right. I think you're right. The, from a budget standpoint, I mean, this is very sort of like it's all kind of, I don't want to say self-contained, but it doesn't have a lot of, you know, um, locations. I think probably the biggest pieces, I think that big, huge sets that they use for the, the nightclub at the end of the movie, I think may have been probably their biggest set that they, they used. And then they had, you know, the garage and they had um, the the boat, um, you know, so they had a few different places, but that was kind of like the big one. So from a, a financial standpoint, you're right, it wasn't quite as big. And I think the explosions, I think, were things they could do with with models and, and, and to sort of save the price on them. Though, though they, you know, like you said, they, for, for the budget, I think, um, yeah, it, it looked at them. I, mean, I think you said too with the Alpha stunt team, I think they were they were so good that I think when they're making their own movie, which I think this, this kind of was more their own movie, it's almost like, you know, another movie that wanted to use them probably would have had to spend a lot more to get them in the film. Yeah, no, I think so, yeah. And though they had quite a tight um, shooting schedule as well. So I know that they did a lot where they would shoot in two units. 
um, sort of simultaneously, just so they could get the the film made in a really tight schedule. Um, I don't know what version you you saw. Do you know if you saw the director's cut or the theatrical cut? So this, the version that I watched for this was on Tubi, which is the um, the theatrical cut. But then I think yeah. the one that I watched when I reviewed it for the site was the the um, the direct. I, I think the director's cut had been out by then. This was um, what was it? Ten years ago that I reviewed it. Yeah, but but about 10, 12 years ago. I, I thought it was the director, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe even that one was also the um the, the theatrical version. Yeah, I mean, I know the director isn't a big fan of the the theatrical cut because they literally strip away every sort of extra level of character to, you know, in terms of motivation for Tacascos's character. So in the director's cut, he's got a lot more motivation in what he's doing. Um, and they changed the score around as well completely. So I think in the theatrical cut, they had this kind of a little bit of a, like a techno-y kind of score that was a little bit uh, slightly jarring, where I think in the director's cut, they replaced it with something that felt a little bit more impressive and actually fit the the moments within the action a lot more. Yeah, so so definitely the first the, when I originally watched, I think it was the director's cut because it was I do remember that 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 techno score a little bit more heavily, um, and it, it also the, the the length seems to fit. Like I remember it being I think closer to two hours when I watched it um, for that review, and you could see you could hear like there were a couple bits of like that that techno music in there, but um, you're right, and and I guess maybe too getting back to what we talked about with the Cascos and his sort of like that that quality that he has to bring some depth to a role that, you know, uh, American distributors don't know what to do with, perhaps, that um, makes the movie, at least it gives the movie a little bit more depth. And I guess, too, there is that mindset of, like, length was still a, a concern. I think that obviously this is well before yeah. Netflix, where now Netflix would put out a, a two-hour action movie all the time. But at that time, especially if it's not going to be, you know, even theatrical releases, I, I think... Um, when I, I watched Batman Returns recently, that was like just around two hours. Um, so even theatrical releases were, were, you'd be lucky if they were that long. Um, so then to think of something that wasn't gonna be released theatrically, they probably wanted to get it closer to like, it ended up being a, um, you know, 145. Yeah, I mean, that would have been it really. They just, they sort of take out everything that they think they can afford to lose really, which is a shame and there's only really, three or four of these kind of moments, but there's one particular scene where, you know, Dacascos is kind of laying out everything that's happened to him to Kadeem Hardison, where just sort of prior to the final scene. So they're on the, in the car and they're on the way to the, basically the final kind of action scene. And it's like a little confessional scene where he's really good in it. And basically that got cut out. So it's, it's a shame really, because that would have added just that extra, extra touch to the film i think in terms of like emotional involvement yeah yeah for sure and i think also too maybe to, for Decascos, i know um one of the things i i think in um watching scott adkins's um youtube series where he you know talks to other uh, action leads that the these action leads really like to be able to show that they can actually act as well as as do the martial arts piece and so then to have the scene where where, where Dacascos is really showing that he can act um, and, and, and play that part well, to have it completely be cut out, I think probably was deflating for him as well. Yeah, 
I think it is. I think I listened to the commentary as well on the, the DVD edition I've got. Um, and I think, yeah, they did mention that while they were sort of looking over the scene. There was, you know, it just, it's one of those things, you know, the, you always get things cut out that you don't really want. Yeah. You know, when you're an actor or you're a director, writer. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe maybe right here we can maybe do a quick sort of synopsis to give people a sense. I I think most people listening to to this episode have have watched this movie. Um, but anybody who hasn't, this is definitely one you've got to see. And, and the synopsis standpoint, we get to Cascos' character is Toby Wong. Um, he's from Hong Kong. He sort of shows up um on a a, a boat, which it's supposed to be in um supposed to be in San Francisco, but I believe it's San Pedro in in, in L.A. Um. But uh, he's, he gets off the boat and he's attacked by um, John Piper Ferguson and his men. Um, and he you know, sort of takes them down on the boat, escapes uh, in the water. And the next thing you know, he's in a bar where he sees Kadeem Hardison. And John Piper Ferguson's men's men attack them there. And that's where he's sort of, in a way, kidnaps Kadeem Hardison, makes him drive him, um, the idea of driving him to L.A. And then as the, the film un, unravels, or as, as the film sort of uh, goes on, we get a sense that, okay, the Cascos' character, um, he was implanted with, with something, uh, with a device when, um, <laughs> when, when uh, China took over Hong Kong in, in the late 90s. The Chinese government implanted a device that's supposed to make him sort of stronger and, and um, uh, better equipped to be a fighter. But he's escaped and he's going to sell this device that's implanted in him to a tech company in Los Angeles. So he just needs to get there to sell the device. And... Of course, the Chinese government wants it back, so they uh, hire John Piper Ferguson to to get the device back. And then at the same time, you've got Kadeem Hardison, who's being forced at first to drive the Cascos, but then he sort of, you know, likes the Cascos, and he also likes the idea of getting part of the money that the Cascos is going to get for selling the device. So they kind of make their way down um, the uh, California to L.A. Uh, they make a stop with Brittany Murphy, who um, at that time I think she she hadn't done I think she had done Clueless, I guess, at that point, but um, she was, I think, someone who was also trying to kind of find her way and getting parts. But she plays this sort of kooky uh, hotel owner who um, is has a thing for Kadeem Hardison. And she helps the two of them out. But then, of course, uh, the, the people chasing them find them there, blow up her hotel. And then uh, she sort of directs them to go to this club to get a car that they can take all the way to L.A. And at that time, uh, the Chinese government has sent another model who's a, you know advanced model to go and, and, and confront the Cascos. And that's where they sort of have the big confrontation there in the this nightclub uh, where the movie essentially ends. There's a little bit that comes after, but that's sort of like the big uh, finale. Um, but, you know, throughout the film, you've kind of got a situation where every like 10 minutes or so, you have some kind of solid action scene with the Cascos uh, using his martial arts against a whole host of baddies that just, uh, I think that there really isn't, um, there isn't a lot of downtime in this film, I guess is probably the best way to look at it. Even I think even the director's cut didn't have a lot. And so, um, yeah, this is, for me, this is definitely, I'm, I think it might be my favorite DeCasco's movie, This Wonder Crying Freeman. Yeah, yeah, I'm very much the same. I'm kind of between the two in terms of what my favorite is. I just think, you know, this is, you know, it's such a lot of fun. I think what they've done is they deliver everything, you know, perfectly so. The action is great. It's there's not many films that have come out in America since that have you know matched this for action. 
And I know that Scott Adkins is a big fan of it. You know, he's one of the few that can kind of create fight scenes in his films that kind of come close. Um, but I think, you know, what really makes it work is there's a really good chemistry between uh, Dacascos and Kadeem Hardison. And then when Brittany Murphy, Murphy comes into the film as well, she has a really good kind of chemistry with those two as well. I think it all links together quite well. Yeah, and I think even like the Brittany Murphy character watching that, I think that's another thing with like distributors in Hollywood. They wouldn't know what to do with that character, that she's off the wall as opposed to just being like this sort of, you know, in, in most action movies, a Brittany Murphy character comes in and she's just there to be like this sort of sexy, uh, you know, love interest for the main character. And I think one, you know, with Dacascos' character sort of, again, like we don't get it in the, in the, in the theatrical cut, but he's not someone that's going to be looking for a romantic lead at that, a, a, you know, romantic love interest at that time. Um, so it wouldn't have worked in that capacity, but then also with Kadeem Hardison's character, uh, with him being more offbeat, it needed to, her to be more offbeat. But I think, again, it's so non-traditional that I was watching it and I was like, yeah, I kind of get like, again, why, you know, distributors and, and, and wouldn't have been on board with this. They would have just been like, this is too weird for us. Whereas I thought it was another fun element of the film that made it work. Yeah, very much so. It's one of those things where, you know, distributors, if they see something written down or they see something on the final product that's a little bit off, off center or different to what is normally expected, they get a little bit edgy, I guess, in terms of, you know, can we, is this going to work for our audience? Do they just want something that's kind of routine? Like you say, maybe just the more generic kind of female working at the motel and she's just a bit more like wallpaper really right and they just have the sort of the love scene yeah. in in the hotel room you know like he you know i mean i mean it's kind of funny thinking about like the juxtaposition that there's a scene in the film where dacascos's character is is sleeping and Brittany murphy goes in to try to wake him up because you know she her her mindset is that okay these two guys have come here so she can kind of party with them and hang out with them while they're there and, you know, Kadeem Hardison's character is working on his car. So now she wants to interact with the Cascos, but he's sleeping the whole time. And it's sort of like this great juxtaposition from like what we usually see in those romantic movies where the main <laughs> character is sleeping, you know, he's probably shirtless. And then the woman walks in in something, you know, very, you know, very skimpy or something and sort of wakes him up. And then maybe the, you know, cue the saxophone music and they start the, the love scene. Um, and this was the complete opposite where she's trying to wake him. She's like trying to dump water on him. There's some ridiculous movie playing with like a, a, a frog with an enhanced brain um, playing on the, on the TV <laughs> set. And, and then the, the, yeah. the baddies show up and we get this really fantastic action scene that is just absolutely just, you know, inside this little small hotel room with, uh, with Brittany Murphy and Dacascos and then, you know, John Piper Ferguson and his baddies. I, it was really, really fantastic. It was just something that was just, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, and, and again, it, it just kind of completely, it, it gives you something completely different from what we expect in these action movies. Yeah, for sure. I think, what you know, each set piece has its own unique sort of flavour and they use every setting that they've got really, you, you know, really interestingly. Um, so you've got the very tight kind of motel room sequence where, it's very kind of frantic and he's using the mattress to block them off. He's bouncing off the beds to kind of, you know, dodge bullets and shoot them back. 
and then you've got this kind of frantic scene in the main room where he's using pots and pans and um they've got these kind of sort of electric nightsticks so at one point he has to take his boots off and put them on his hands um it's just really imaginative i think it's got that kind of the the kind of quality that you would get in hong kong where the action is really thought thought out very well like a kind of you know chaotic kind of dance so they're clearly very inspired by that but given the time they had i think it's really impressive with what they came out with yeah i completely agree and i think you make a great point with the inspired piece i mean i think you, you even see it like right away in that very first fight on the boats where he's just you know sort of you know jumping around and, and sort of yeah using everything at his disposal and yeah, that, that sort of that inspired mindset. I mean, I, I was watching City Hunter, um, you know, the Jackie Chan movie with, uh, you know, uh, Norton and um, and uh, and Gary Daniels, or Richard, Richard Norton, and Gary Daniels. And I mean, that was one that was made in Hong Kong. And you see almost a similar mindset. Of course, that was done on a much bigger budget, much bigger scale. But, you know, the 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 cadence of the fight scenes and like you said, the ability to sort of use everything and just think of like, what, what would we do for a scene there? Um, you know, it, it, even even just thinking about um, uh, Jackie Chan and that, where he's give you know the the two women throw him nightsticks so he can fight off uh, Richard Norton using the the batons that he's he's wielding, and it's almost like kind of the same thing. The way DeCascos takes those boots and puts them on his hands and uses them to block the the nightsticks, um, and then he sees that they're kind of melted, right? And he has to throw them aside. And it, <laughs> yeah, it was it was really yeah. it, it was one of those things too with his character where. They even, you know, Piper Ferguson's character even mentions it, like, hey, he's going to take your guns off you and use them against you. And it's like this this thing where he's he's never really armed, but he's able to use what he has to to uh, yeah to, to fend off these these bad guys. And and again, they use the technique of having all the baddies sort of have masks on um, so that they can probably, you know, cycle through a lot of that the, the alpha stunt team and, and have them in different parts. But. It's like every fight is just so inspired. And the fact that, you know, seeing how much the Cascos was up to the task, I think, was just so, I think, like you said, I mean, he's just he's so underrated that he isn't getting more roles um, when you see him in something like this. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, he's, you know, he's performing most of this sort of stunts and things himself. Um, and, his, you know, his physical prowess at the, that time was kind of unique i think you know his mixed of kind of like gymnastics and his martial arts so i mean there's a you know there's a moment where he kind of flips over these railings on a sort of a, a level on the first floor of this kind of outside balcony and then sort of somersault does a back somersault off that onto the floor sort of 10 feet below so he, he does it at sort of the drop of a hat as if it's nothing yeah, yeah. And and also too, I mean, you know, we 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 the scenes that he does with Kadeem Hardison where, you know, again, we take for granted nowadays that a Kadeem Hardison is in a movie like this and the editors are gonna, you know, use split second cuts to to mitigate his perhaps inability to, to work in the action sphere. And they didn't really have that here. So it's really just the Cascos sort of propping him up. And I think the same thing with the scenes with, with Brittany Murphy, where it's almost like he's carrying them through the action scenes to make them uh, as spectacular as they were. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, they, they really play to his strengths in that, and they they always kind of keep a sort of com uh, comical tone 
within the action as well. So they always remember that kind of blending of comedy with the action. And I think that makes those set pieces more interesting. And, you know, later on, they you've got these sequences that get kind of really wild with the, the kind of stunt bikes that burst in through the nightclub. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense, but, you know, much like all the sort of Hong Kong films, it doesn't really need to. It just, it's part of this whole kind of, you know, crazy action film. And, you know, again, maybe that's part of the thing that didn't really, that the producers weren't really too keen on. So maybe they thought, oh, this is a little bit too kind of over the top. Yeah, and I wonder too, you know, when you, when you mentioned that part of it, the potentially being too over the top, you know, I wonder too, with a lot of the, the, the people that would have been making those decisions at that time, they probably would have been people who came up in the 70s with a lot of the grindhouse films where you've got like, you know, um, you know, Italian-based uh, films, movies like The Warriors, where there was almost like an everything but the kitchen sink approach, where it's just, a, you know, the main character walks into this area of kind of like destroyed Brooklyn or the Bronx, and there's just these gangs that, right, are just kind of in these really outlandish costumes. And again, you know, uh, somebody in a dirt bike would be completely... Uh, it, yeah, at home in a situation like that. And I wonder if they, they kind of had a crap, like they, they kind of saw all of that as crass and anything that maybe harkened back to that, they maybe thought the same thing. Like, well, this is just like these Italian grindhouse films that I watched in the seventies. Like this, you know, why, why is this dirt bike here? That just, there's no point in that or something like that. Yeah. I think it's just one of those things really. They obviously kind of left um, the production to, to it you know it's one of those things where they they just say right as long as you get it done in time you know do what you like but then when it comes to sort of screening the the rough cut they're probably thinking oh this is going to be quite difficult to really sell whereas really it shouldn't be it should make it more of a marketable film i think to be that kind of wild yeah and and i you know i do wonder like with this idea of like okay we don't we don't know what American audiences would, would go for, what they would like. I mean, you know, seeing DeCasco's, the, the sort of electric martial arts that he brings to this role, it's almost like the very first scene you see it, and, and it's like it kind of draws you in right away. Or, I mean, I don't know how it can't draw you in right away when you first see it from that first scene. And you know, like, each successive scene is going to probably, I mean, they, they, they do the, 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 that, that job of building on each successive scene so that, like, that first one is just the start. It, it's hard to imagine somebody, but I guess, you know, maybe they look at it and say, well, no, this is what American audiences don't like this martial arts stuff. They like, you know, I don't know if that was the, I don't know what the, the mindset would be, but it's hard not to be drawn in when, when, when it starts like that. Yeah, I guess maybe they, you know, in a very kind of, you know, simplistic way, they probably thought, well, martial art films are on the way down. You know, Seagal's not making money anymore. Van Damme's not making as much money. Um, it already hasn't quite worked with DeCasco. So it might have been in their mindset that, you know, they didn't really want to push it beyond maybe HBO level and, you know, things like that. So maybe they, they should have had a bit more faith in it, or, you know, in hindsight maybe someone should have taken that chance that obviously, you know, a year later they were taking a chance on Jackie Chan and bringing that kind of action into 
American cinema. And then obviously a year later, you've got Yim Wu Ping. He comes in and does, you know, the fight choreography for The Matrix. So, you know, by then it becomes in vogue. Right, because, yeah, when we get to The Matrix, um, you know, and, yeah, thinking about that sort of that, that 90s period, I mean, I, you know, we had Rumble in the Bronx in the mid-90s, and it was almost like when that was released here in the States, it was almost like it was like a, a novelty um, as opposed to, like, no, this guy, you know, is doing something special. It was almost like this novelty. Oh, he does his own stunts, and he almost gets hurt and all that stuff. Um, but like you said, like, you know, we, we get into the rush hour thing, in 98 um so one year after after this film after drive and yeah i think there was a sense that like when they made these movies i think all of the ones he kind of makes in the in the late 90s into the early 2000s they're they have some of the jackie chan that you expect but it's not like that same hong kong feel it's almost like they try to sort of merge hong kong with a, uh, an american sensibility uh, or you know sort of a hollywood sensibility and you know he has a bunch of hits there but it's almost like it's only like it i guess it was, what was it would have been jackie chan and jet lee that were kind of the big ones for, for those kind of movies that maybe they thought too like okay well they they have the cachet of being from from china uh, from hong kong whereas you know mark dacascos is from hawaii so it's like what do we do with him because he's a he's technically an american who's doing these kinds of movies uh, maybe the same thing with, with cynthia rothrock you know she's she's an american you know that's not what american audiences want for the kung fu movie they want somebody who's from hong kong yeah i mean you that you know that could have been a factor as well it's um i think one thing with the jackie chan films is that you know he came from doing a you know these fight scenes where they would spend months at a time just on the fight scenes and then all of a sudden he's doing you know this film where maybe they'll say to him right you've got one week to do your fight scenes um, so he found that quite difficult. And then he initially he found it quite difficult working in a system where they would want to film everything in slightly longer takes on maybe a couple of cameras. Whereas, you know, in Hong Kong, they segment everything. So they'll shoot four seconds and then the next part, they'll shoot another four seconds and they'll do everything kind of almost chronologically um, and then piece it together in the edit. So he probably found that process quite difficult. I mean, because the Hollywood ways, it's more it's more time efficient, but it's not necessarily going to come together as smoothly and as or, you know organically as maybe doing it piece by piece. Yeah, and and there wasn't the sense too of even like having the separate action director that that Hong Kong uses. I know. PM Entertainment did that. They would have an action director for their scenes. And, and it shows for, for the budgets that they have. I mean, you think of around the time this comes out, you have Recoil with, with uh, Gary Daniels, which was just, you know, probably my, my favorite PM Entertainment movie. When they, they had Spiro Rosados, or, uh, yeah, I think it's Rosado, um, who was the, uh, yeah. the action director on that one. But yeah, these movies didn't always, you know, they didn't do the, the, the Hong Kong model of having the action director doing the action scenes and then the, the other director doing the, the, the more theatrical scenes. Yeah, so I think it, it took a while for Jackie Chan to sort of adapt to that. And I know by Rush Hour 2, um, Brett Ratner basically gave him a bit more control over the actual action itself. Rather than using Chan as sort of a, an advisor, he gave him a little bit more creative control in as much as he, he could in the time that they had to, you know, take control of the 
the action scenes because he'll know better than anyone you know how to place the camera in a way that makes it look even better yeah and that's something i think i've i've seen on on scott adkins's you know podcast you know his um his youtube series where he's talking to other action stars where they talk about being in these movies where you you get a director who doesn't really know what they're doing and i know like michael jai white had talked about that where it's like he has to tell the director to shoot it a certain way because he he knows when it comes to you know me or somebody you know any of us like reviewing these movies that if it doesn't look right you know we're going to be like oh this was a bad movie for this per you know for this this star and that you know he wants the movie to represent him in a certain way and it's something I'd never really considered before when I watch a movie and I'm like, oh, they, you know, they, they wasted, you know, Atkins or they wasted Michael J. White or something like that, that the reason why was because they, you know, they had a director who really didn't know how to shoot action, but they just wanted to get the film out there and, and kind of do the best they could. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think, you know, there's a lot of action directors that kind of have the best of both worlds, really. I mean, you know, Isaac Florentine obviously knows what he's doing. Jesse Johnson, you know, to an extent, he knows action in terms of, you know, putting together set pieces with guns and things like that and stunts. But I think after doing like one or two with Adkins, they kind of came to an understanding that maybe they would get, you know, a separate person in to do like the second unit in terms of the fights and, you know, kind of leave them to it. Um guy called Tim Mann for a couple of films, I think, and then a couple of other choreographers that they've used as well. So, you know, sometimes a director can have an ego about it or, you know, feel like they're being challenged and kind of rebel against that. But other times, like Jesse Johnson, for example, they'll just, they'll do what's the best for the film. Um, in terms of something like Triple Threat, where that needed to have slightly more Hong Kong style action, so he basically, you know, he just said, right, we'll give it to the choreographer and the second unit guy to, you know, take care of that side of it. And I'll take care of all the other bits with the, you know, explosions and guns and the, the drama. Yeah. And I, when I think of uh, Triple Threat, the thing for me that I always I always had trouble with is they had too many stars and it was like they, they couldn't use them all. And um, yeah, in, in a way you think of it like, well, it's a good problem to have, but it was almost like. You know, there was there's so much there was almost like I, I usually don't want a movie to be longer, but it's almost <laughs> like that one could have used another half hour to it. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that's too bad. I think in a lot of cases is that, you know, again, Jesse B. Johnson doesn't have the budget to make anything more than a 90 minute film. Um, the distributors don't want anything longer than a 90 minute film. So he's got like six of like the best. You know, I mean, uh, if, you, if you put Michael Bisping in that category, I think you had, you know, the other other five stars in that some of the best action, you know, martial artists in movies. And it just, it, there wasn't enough room for them all, it felt like. Um, and, and, and I think that's part of the problem, I think, is that, it, it, that there isn't a sense of like these movies working the way that I think we, we, would, we, would, we would want them to work. Um, it's almost like a, a fact where they, uh, maybe it's distributors who, who don't trust that we would watch the movie the way that, that, um, that we, we would want it to be made, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, occasionally they, they're, I mean, obviously they, they put so much money into the films that they're going to be naturally um, cautious. 
And I think what it is, is sometimes that they just don't want to take that gamble to maybe give a film an extra 10 minutes um, for fear of kind of losing the audience. I mean, particularly now when you're, you've got to start thinking about your, you know, on streaming and advertising revenue. So, you know, you want your action film to have a certain amount of beats every sort of five, 10 minutes, you need some action because you want people to be staying until the end and you want that extra bit of revenue. Um, from the film so they've always that's kind of that's almost cemented the whole 90 minute thing even more now I think um, because advertising video on demand is quite big really in the low budget sort of film realm yeah that's an interesting point too because I was thinking about like the Bruce Willis movies that you know some of them do kind of stretch into that hour hour 45 but even the 90 minute ones because they have to mitigate the fact that Bruce Willis can't be in the film that that for that much. And I think from a budgetary standpoint, they can't do as much in the action realm. There's just so much padding in those movies. And, yeah. you know, if you get 20 minutes without an action sequence, it can be difficult to sort of make it through the film. So, you know, I definitely get that. You know, I think of, you know, this movie is a really great example. Um, Recoil, which came out, I think, um, I don't know if it came out the same year or the year before um, for PM Entertainment. Um, but a similar one where it's like, you start the film off with a really fantastic action sequence. Um, and and this one, there was a bit of a little bit of a buildup, whereas I think Recoil, it's just like suddenly there they are. At the You know, <laughs> Daniels just shows up at this <laughs> bank robbery and, and it turns into this huge shootout, uh, and, and, which leads to a, a dirt bike chase as well. Again, another, you know, it's like, you know, the, the baddies just happen to have a dirt bike nearby and they just, you know, escape on it. Um, but this one, you know, same thing where it's like, okay, we, we get into the scene and it's like, it's back to back, really. It's like he... He, he fights on the boat, he escapes through the water, he shows up at this bar, he meets Kadeem Hardison, and immediately the baddies are there again at this bar, and we get another sequence, um, you know, not long after. And he, so you don't really have a lot of time to, to relax, which I think is good for a movie like this, that, that it's going to keep it going. But um, like you said, I think from a budget standpoint, if you've got to maintain, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes, those action sequences cost a lot more than just having two people sitting in a limo talking. Um, and... Yeah, to be able to keep that budget up can be difficult if it's more than a 90-minute movie. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for the most part, a lot of these films tend to be, the way they're made, they tend to be lighter than what they should be. So, they, yeah, there is more padding out. But I think, you know, if, you know, as we were saying, with something like Triple Threat, that felt like there was a lot that was condensed into it. Um and that maybe it could have done with being just eased out slightly to add a, just to make, you know, the, the plot a bit clearer and just to give a little bit more for each kind of individual star to do. Yeah, because, you know, you think about like, you know, had Tony Jaa in that, Tiger Chen, um, Eco Weiss, where like they're having these very small little pieces here or there where they're interacting with each other. And then, yeah, Michael J. White and Scott Atkins, kind of the same thing. I mean, Scott Atkins' character, they kind of just introduce him as this, like, terrorist baddie character. And then Michael J. White is sort of like his, his, his right-hand man. And, um, yeah, they get scenes where they're kind of, you know, you, you get a sense of who they are. But it, it, And I think also, too, for who these, these actors were, like, you, you want them all to have. I mean, I think the, the fight scene with, with Weiss and, um, and Michael J. White, for example, was a really great one, the way that they did that one. And you're anticipating that, and you're almost like, boy, it would have been nice to have something maybe like in between those that like could have built me up to that really great fight. Like another one, you know, 10 minutes before or something like that, that 
yeah, it was like you just didn't get enough of all of them because there was just too many in the film, I guess. And and I, I don't know, it feels like it would be a, a, a good problem to have, but I guess in that case, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess that part of it is how long you've got them scheduled in for. So you kind of, you have to really make the most of your time. And sometimes it can be, a you know, quite a difficult job to get everything done within the schedule of a certain actor. Um, so, yeah, they're just sort of, you know, cramming it in and just getting as much as they can from each each individual individual actor. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess that's one thing about Drive that does make Drive work in that sense that it is just the cast goes. And then, you know, like you talk about the, the Alpha stunt team, they're kind of just there sort of around him um, as the, the, the baddies, you know, that just sort of are there in those fight scenes. And and so you just you just get just the cascos the whole time and I th- I know they had um the the sort of the the, the um the sort of up- upgraded model that he fights at the end and I think that was a really great fight between those two when when, when that happens uh, but it was almost too like I think from a, a a character development standpoint that character just sort of shows up it would have almost been nice if that character had some scene or something with other characters before that maybe he beats up police officers or something. Um, just to kind of see what he can do before um, to kind of build that up a little bit more because that was a, a, an anticipated fight scene, but we really didn't know much about that other character. No, I guess, you know, that's the, the time constraint. I know he had the, he's got the one introduction scene where he throws a coin. Right. And yeah. it goes right through this guy and then out the other side and it kind of sticks into the, into the wall. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, very much like well he's our bad guy and he's going to come in right at the end for the final fight so i mean it's got those kind of you know cheesy action elements but i think just from start to finish it's really well paced and i think it works so well because between the fights you're kind of having fun as well um you know i like the dynamic between um Dukascos and uh, kadeem hardison but i also like the dynamic between the two villains uh john piper ferguson and tracy tracy walter so they're they're kind of almost oddly likable even though they do kind of like horrible things like most villains do um there's just a kind of you know an interesting comedy dynamic between them two that they make quite a you know funny double act yeah and i like too i mean john piper ferguson's character is just sort of like the ugly american um as the baddie and it, he starts off being like really arrogant about the whole thing and thinks this is going to be a piece of cake we'll take it you know and then as the as the film goes on he realizes this isn't going to be so easy <laughs> to do and and at the, the same time he's talking to you know james shigata um or shigata who, who plays the um the the uh company head in china who, who wants to re- retrieve him and he's getting like more and more testy with him uh, and getting more and more angry with him and uh, yeah, it, it is kind of a fun dynamic as they're sort of riding in this um, this RV uh, and kind of going from place to place to to confront Dacascos. And you know, we find out, of course, that that Dacascos has a, has a tracking device in his system, and that's how they're able to find him in all of these places. Um, but it but the tracking device, of course, leads to a really great dynamic in the sense, like you talk about with the pacing, that we don't have to worry about how the baddies are going to find Dacascos and create another fight scene again. Like they. They already know where he's going to be, and they just show up, and and, and it happens. Um, but yeah, those those interplays were great. I think you know, Kadeem Hardison is somebody that, as, as an actor, I think 
as you said, he could he could handle the scenes that were not the action scenes and be funny and and engaging, so that you know we could kind of take a break um, uh, between those those nice fight scenes. Yeah, I think you know it's just they kind of take the easy option in terms of the plot where they keep it very very simple. So you know they're not having to like you say waste time. Where how are they going to find out where they are? Um, you know, it's just the tracking device is kind of like a useful technique and maybe it's a little bit lazy in some ways, but I think the the film is more preoccupied with being kind of like an all-out entertaining, you know, fight fest. So they don't necessarily need to be too complex with their, their storyline. They just need to get it from A to B to C and then up to the end. Yeah, and I've always appreciated that about a movie. One of the things I always talk about with action movies is not letting the plot get in the way. And uh, this movie definitely doesn't do that. It, 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 like you said, it's well paced, and it, like, the plot is there, and the plot is important, but it never, it never weighs the film down in a way that um, it, it detracts from the action, which is the, the sort of the, the, the centerpiece of it. And, and of course, that action is just so fantastic with, with you know, with Mark DeCascos that it, yeah, like the whole film really works in that sense. Yeah, I think, you know, that I, I think there's something to be said for doing something simple, but doing it very well. I mean, even if you look at, you know, Top, Top Gun Maverick recently, it's very kind of simple in terms of its storyline. Um, you know, they don't overcomplicate things and they keep it quite, quite vague in terms of, you know, who they're going up against and what they're doing. Um, but you know, it's, it's you know about this you know collection of set pieces, and it's really well made. So I think you know doing something simple and doing it well is you know a good way to go. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, an issue. It seems like nowadays with movies, like, I mean, obviously you know the the, the uh, with what goes to the theater, it, it's always like how big can it be, and how many people can be attracted to the film, and can it make you know clear a billion worldwide. But it seems like even with the direct-to-video realm that uh, even when they're trying to keep the movie within that 90-minute frame, that there's these moments where they, they kind of get carried away or they do something. They, they either you know, tack something onto the film that they didn't need to tack on or they embellish something they don't need to embellish. And you know, I think obviously it helps when you have something like Cascos that you can lean on. But to that same point, it's like you almost feel like, well, why don't more movies lean on Mark Cascos doing really fantastic action and, and keep the movie simple in that sense but have you know multiple outstanding fight scenes that you can really hang your hat on versus you know trying to come up with as many cute plot twists as you can or, or that kind of thing yeah i think you know sometimes it's difficult because i think sometimes with these films that they they overcomplicate it i mean i remember that kind of era where steven seagal was doing sort of free two or three films a year and there would always be some kind of like CIA subplot that kind of didn't particularly go anywhere or really slowed the film down even more than it already was. Um, and yeah, even like looking at the Marvel films, they have to cram so much in and they have to have so many different sort of plot strands going kind of simultaneously. It can be quite difficult, you know, to follow sometimes, but obviously they kind of make up for that with the sheer scale of the spectacle. But if you've got a you know a DTV film where there's not been a great deal of money spent on the action, 
and you're kind of grinding the film to a halt because you've got this this subplot all of a sudden it it can be difficult to kind of you know keep your audience engaged whereas i think sometimes you just want you know meat and potatoes quite simple and just get yourself from a to b in the quickest route possible and nail your action and maybe nail your comedy as well yeah, because, you know, I think this movie had the potential to, to have some of those faults with it, right? Like, because, for example, with yeah. Brittany Murphy's character, they leave her at the diner after they escape the motel when John Piper Ferguson blows it up with the rocket launcher. Um, they leave her there and say, you know, we're going to, you know, it's not safe for you to join us. We're going to, you know, keep you here. And so then it's like one less element that we have to worry about when we get to that that final fight. And then also the final fight reminded me a lot of the Marvel movies where we have that moment where it's like the all hope is lost, right? Where Kadeem Hardison, his character is being strangled by John Piper Ferguson, and then Mark Dacascos is losing to um, to the, the enhanced model from China that's coming to fight him. And, you know, every Marvel movie has that sense, right? That whole all hope is lost piece where it looks like the baddies are all going to win and, you know, everybody's going to lose. And then somehow they turn it around. And this did yeah. so quickly, like that the they turn it around happens fast enough that it doesn't again doesn't weigh the film down, even though it's something we know is probably going to have to happen that they they have to add some level of intrigue that Mark Dacascos is having trouble beating this this baddie. They do it so quickly that it doesn't weigh the film down. It doesn't feel as contrived as a lot of times in the Marvel movies it does, where it's like I feel like I I have to go through this part of the film to get through the rest of the movie for the Marvel movies. Yeah, that's it. They're really, you know, it's really kind of efficiently made in that sense of um, because, you know, it's coming in the middle of, you know, you just had this big set piece. There's been motorbikes and, you know, lots of fighting, um, weapons work and things like that. So for that last final stage of the fighting, you kind of want to get back into it before the audience kind of, you know, they, you don't want their adrenaline their adrenaline to come down too much so you want to kind of get them back up again quite quickly yeah and and it didn't do that right it because i mean you get this baddie who shows up and he's like he's throwing his his um his sunglasses around and you know he's got this big coat on but he's just like sort of this next level and it's the first time we see someone who's dacascos is equal in the movie so we want to see this fight happen as much as possible but then like you said, we also don't want it to be, I mean, I think of what was it, the, the second of the two kickboxer reboot movies where like the, the end fight <laughs> scene, I think went for a half hour with, um, you know, uh, uh, Alain Moussi and that kind of the big guy that, the, that he was fighting against. I, I want to say it was like a half hour film of, of that fight. So, you know, this, they wanted to keep the pacing up and know that like, yes, this is the big kind of denouement, but we don't want it to, uh, yeah, take too much out of the, the, the film uh, watcher who's, who's been with us for this point to this point yeah i think you know they they really nailed the pacing on this um it was just yeah yeah really really well made and you know you don't get overly exhausted by the the fight scenes either they just had that perfect balance of where they get to a point where it there could be a danger of them dragging on too long so i mean some set pieces and you'll find this particularly in you know, massive budget movies where, you know, if you've got 20 minute set pieces, they get exhausting after a time and you just sort of almost want it to kind of move on to a dialogue scene. You just give me some dialogue, please. Um, you know, I found that you find that a lot in the Marvel films. 
I think that almost harkened back to Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, with like, you know, 30, 40 minute battle scenes in the two towers and things like that, where it's impressive, but it just, it's too long. Yeah, because you almost think of it too, like with, with, because I always compare the action movie to the musical. Um, and, you know, that, that like with a musical, you need to have a musical set piece or dance piece or something every, you know, whatever, 10 to 15 minutes, the way you need a, a fight scene every 10 to 15 minutes. And and it can kind of be the same thing that if it's like, you know, Gene Kelly is just, you know, if that scene is going on for too long or Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, the scene is going on for too long, the audience gets tired of it and they want to kind of move on to the next thing. It, it's with, with action, it can kind of, like you said, it can be the same thing because you can only do so much of the, um, you know, the the blocking, the kicking, the the punching, you know, and all that kind of thing back and forth. Even with this, where they're doing inspired things, like where it's like, okay, he's got to protect Brittany Murphy. So he's got to like kind of bounce her around off the bed and things like that to get her to dodge the bullets. Um, or Kadeem Hardison, where he's he's handcuffed to him with this sort of longer um, uh, strand between their, their two cuffs, almost kind of like a, a, a defiant ones or something. And um, he's doing these fight scenes with him where he's got to kind of flip him around and move him around to 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 uh, to fight the the bad guys. It, it's like it, it's really inspired and it's really cool. But like you said, it can it can sort of run into that that uh, sort of excitement by repetition problem where you you start to feel like okay, I've already seen this before. And that is one thing that this film is very conscious of is it never gets repetitive on us. That like each each fight scene or every every um, action bit. It, it belongs in the movie, but also it's, it feels inspired. It feels like they wanted to do something different with each scene. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, there's a nice mix with, you know, the vehicle stuff as well. That kind of brings an extra element in. All the different settings have their own kind of unique, unique qualities as well. And obviously, like we said before, you know, they bring the setting into it as well. Um, you know, in the garage, you know, he's kicking tires at people and things like that. So, it's just really impressive the way they put together this film on such a small budget. And, um, you know, I'm glad it's become, you know, a really a sort of cult film, particularly among martial art fans. But it's just a shame that it didn't really kind of kick off bigger, you know, on its release. Yeah, because, you know, when you think of the 90s action movie, you know, there's so many kind of these, these bigger budget films and we, you know, we think of especially the early half of that decade where you had you know Seagal you had Schwarzenegger you had uh, Van Damme you know putting out these classics you know, like some hard target you know um, mark for death all of those kinds of things but this is one of the few I think from the later part of the decade that could sort of you know take the Pepsi challenge so to speak with with those earlier 90s movies it and, and it doesn't have the kind of the budget that those other movies had yet still has the, the quality there that you could you could put this in in a night where you're watching something like a hard target, you know, or a mark for death, and it wouldn't feel out of place. It would feel like it, it, it can hold its own with those movies. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, if you look at something, you know, like Seagal's earlier films and, you know, Van Damme up to sort of a point as well, they both had their kind of individual things where they very much had their style of, of action and their kind of film. And I think, you know, Drive in, in theory could have been the kind of thing that the Cascos could have been known for. So this could have been his thing to do this kind of blend of Hong Kong style action, but in, you know, the Western audiences. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it may have, you know, if, if 
filmmaker, or, you know, if, if um, you know, the movie houses in America and Hollywood had been more creative, the Cascos may have worked better than Jackie Chan in that sense because he does come from both traditions, right? Like he grew up in Hawaii, he grew up in America, so he knows the the Hollywood tradition of films, but then also with his martial arts background, um, you know, with his with his parents and and sort of studying martial arts, he also knows the the Hong Kong tradition of of making movies. And he might have been a better bridge than, like you said, with Jackie Chan, where he's like, you know, why are they making movies like this over here? Or why, why aren't they shooting this the way that, that, that it should be shot? Um, he could have bridged the gap better. And I think Double Dragon maybe is an example of that, where he, he, you know, he could have potentially, had he, you know, had, had it been better made, I think it would have shown that he could do that, that kind of uh, part. Yeah, I mean, if they'd have been a bit more consistent with the comedy and that, and maybe brought the kind of style of fighting that they had in Drive, yeah. I mean, that that could have been a better way to do that film and have it, you know, become more popular. Yeah, and uh, you, you bring up a great point in terms of the comedy aspect that, you know, Kadeem Hardison is a comedic actor, whereas Scott Wolf wasn't. He was more of a dramatic actor who could do offbeat things, but he wasn't. He wasn't like the level of, you know, Kadeem Hardison, you know, he's essentially uh, the sitcom A Different World here in the, in the U.S., a sort of spinoff from The Cosby Show. You know, he really carried that show, especially, you know, it was meant to be a vehicle for Lisa Bonet, but she leaves soon after. And it's really Kadeem Hardison and then Jasmine Guy was the, the co-star with him. But it really was about what was, you know, his character, Dwayne Wayne, what was he doing in that episode with his, you know, flipped up glasses and, you know, his, his sort of offbeat style. And so, yeah, he's definitely, and he's probably another one too. I think he probably got typecast with with a different world and didn't get the roles he should have. So it's sort of another situation here where someone who is not getting the roles that he should have, who's probably better than the material um, or better than the roles he's getting, it's almost like a sort of a, a, an embarrassment of riches that they, for a movie like this, they get someone as really as skilled as the Cascos and someone as skilled as Hardison to play these parts in a lower budget film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think also. If you look at Brittany Murphy, she was sort of in that transitional period as well, um, just before she was kind of becoming consistently cast in these bigger productions. So I think, you know, there's a really great cast in it and they have they gel really well. I think sometimes you can have a good cast, but, you know, the different elements don't really gel together that well. But in this one, they really did, which I think really carries a lot of the film through as well, particularly in the sort of the non the non action parts. Yeah, and I think again, I think that's that that issue we talked about, where like Brittany Murphy is not your traditional, like female lead in a movie like this, and so when she comes in in this this offbeat role, I mean, one of the things I thought about this film is it it feels like it could have been a blood uh, a blood fist movie. You know, it it had like the the plot that you could have seen Don the Dragon Wilson in this part and, and you know, sort of the way it worked out. But again, it, you know, between the fact that the action sequences were even better than a lot of the ones that, that Wilson did in those movies, the fact that you have a character, you know, you, you have a Kadeem Hardison and a um, Brittany Murphy, uh, you know, again, you wouldn't have seen a Brittany Murphy character in a Blood Fist movie. Um, you know, it would have been a, a much more straight ahead, you know, I think Jillian McWhorter was one who was in a lot of those movies, you know, just sort of a, um, traditional romantic lead for him that he can have his love scene with her and maybe she could be a damsel in distress. I mean, that's another piece about this film. We have no damsel in distress. Uh, there's none of that sort of piece that he has to go save or rescue anybody. Brittany Murphy's character, she's there to be like sort of a quirky, sort of fun element to get us from point A to point B. 
and she does a really fantastic job with that. But she's not anywhere like the traditional uh, lead, a female lead would be in an action movie like this. And I think it, yeah, it, it made it hard maybe to, to market or for people to understand it when they were, you know, thinking about distributing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, it's an interesting, you know, part about her character that she's really kind of, she's a little bit crazy as well. So I think, you know, she doesn't have that same sense of fear that, like you say, you get with a damsel in distress. So she gets a little bit sort of crazy and she's all, she's almost ready to sort of take a gun and start firing back at them. Right, right. Yeah, she, she, she's it's like Kadeem Hardison has to, to stop her from from just kind of getting out there and shooting because she's like leaving herself like vulnerable to getting shot. But you're right, like she's just so excited for it. Um, and then at the same time, I mean, I think also too, a lot of times with these characters, like, you know, they tell her at the diner, okay, you need to stay here. We, you know, we'll come back and see you at some point, but you need to stay here because it's not safe for you. You know, usually that character will do something like, you know, uh, stow away in the trunk of a car, right? And then get themselves into trouble and become, again, like a hostage or something or damsel in distress for the baddies to catch them. But no, none of that happens with her. She, you know, it, it, it's a very unique kind of role. And I think it maybe kind of you know speaks to how this film was made and, and, and a lot of the, the decisions that they made. Yeah, I think so. I think it's you no know, they've managed to make something that kind of defies expectations in a lot of ways. You know, you've got a, a hero that's a little bit different. Maybe, you know, Kadeem Hardison's kind of like the more generic character in it. And then you've got Brittany Murphy, who's very sort of quirky. And you've got, you know, a pair of quirky villains as well. Yeah, it's it's a very offbeat thing that it doesn't fit the paradigm of what everybody wants a, I guess, what, what, what they think an action movie should be, which, to be honest, I think for us that watch a lot of action movies, a lot of, yeah, we, you know, we like the straight ahead thing, but like you said, the, the meat and potatoes is sort of the most important part, and the movie definitely does that, right? It gives us exactly what we want out of an action movie, so then these other sort of more inspired pieces that they add to the film you know, we're okay with, with, with them taking that chance with it because the rest of the movie works. So it's, you know, for Brittany Murphy to be a more offbeat character, for them not to use the damsel in distress trope and all of that, it, it works better because everything else is working, I think. Yeah, that's it. I think, you know, it'd be sometimes you can have quirky characters in films where it just feels like it's it's really out of place. So, you know, each element seems to tie together really well in this one. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think, you know, it, the, 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 obviously the action is the number one thing about this movie. It's the, it's the sort of the, 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 um, the centerpiece of what, what makes the whole thing work. And I think none of, none of the rest of it would work if it wasn't for Mark DeCascos and, you know, the, the alpha stunt team and the, the really fantastic action sequences they have and the really great, you know, well choreographed fight scenes that are just well shot and look really good. So, you know, without that, this movie doesn't work. But then it's sort of like all the other pieces kind of come into play to make it something really, truly special. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Well, yeah, so, I, you know, we're about to maybe wrap up and we can maybe do some plugs here. But was there anything else about this film that, that you wanted to mention, Tom? I think it's just one of those films that from as soon as I discovered it, uh, just watching it on, you know, satellite TV, it just, you know, it grabbed me right from the first kind of watch. And then I was kind of looking through it in the TV listings to see when it came on again so I could show my brother. And then 
you know, then I bought the VHS. A little bit later, I bought the DVD. Um, it's just one of those, you know, you can sometimes there's, there's films where you have to sort of get yourself ready to watch it, to really invest in it and get yourself in the right, you know, frame space to watch it. But this is one of those which is just really easy to kind of put on and watch again. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's, you know, when, when we were talking about, because, you know, the last time you were on, we were talking about what, you know, what, what the topic might be for the next time you came on and you mentioned DeCascos. And um, I was thinking about like how we would, you know, do an episode. And I thought, you know what, Drive would probably have enough material for an entire episode on its own that we probably wouldn't need to add a second film to it. And, and it really is one of those special movies that just has so many great pieces to it that you know, you can almost talk about it for hours that there's there's so many great things in there. And like you said, you don't have to prepare yourself to watch it because it's just like the moment you turn it on, it, it again, it just sort of grabs you right away. And if you, it, for me, it had been some years since I'd last seen it. And it was still immediate that it was just like, there's DeCascos on the boat. You know, he jumps down in the middle of these bad guys and just starts, you know, getting after it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a really fantastic movie. It's one that people haven't seen it. It's definitely, you know, you, you probably, you know, as soon as you listen, finish listening to this, you've got to go fire it up yeah 100 percent. you know it still holds up really well it's just a really you know really easy film to watch so you know fans of you know guys like scott adkins you know who expect a certain level of quality within the fight scenes i think they'll get a lot out of this as well and you know they'll they'll probably appreciate the comedy as well and just the simplicity of it yeah because you know maybe a good comp for this is, you know, in 2019 where we had Avengement come out and it was one of those ones that like, you know, direct to video film that people watched and were like, wow, this is like better than a lot of what we're seeing um, in the theater. It's just, you know, it's one of the best action movies we've seen in a long time. You know, Drive is almost kind of the same thing for the late 90s. It, it you know, it's not the same movie in the sense that like, it's like you said, it's much more offbeat, much quirkier. It's not as dark as, as Avengement was. Um, but, you know, from an action standpoint, um, I think I think the fight scenes in, in Drive are, are um, a little bit better in the sense that they're, uh, you know, the, the, the martial arts, you know, kind of the whole team together is really great in it. But Avengement also just has some really great action sequences, especially in the prison there. Um, but I think that's almost a good comp that for people that were really big on Avengement but haven't seen Drive yet, I think they would really appreciate this. Yeah, definitely. And I think also you may be fans of things like um, uh, debt collectors would probably enjoy it as well. Because you've got that kind of the buddy element as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, martial art fans and fans of, you know, a good old-fashioned buddy cop kind of, you know, buddy film would really like this as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think for me, I have it on DVD just because I'm uh, one of the followers of the, of the blog back in 2010. He wanted me to review it, so he just sent me his DVD copy of it. Um, so, but I, mine is like from that that long ago. I think I think there's a newer version of it out now, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I, I know in the UK through 88 Films they've got a release now. So there's um there's a 4K version now which has the director's cut and a load of features and things that have been on previous editions, um, and a Blu-ray as well. So I'm sort of I've got my director's cut collector's edition DVD here, but I'm probably due to replace it with the Blu-ray soon. Yeah, I don't know if they're available. Cause, so one of the problems is for, for Amazon is that they confuse it with the, um, the uh, 
Ryan Gosling drive, which I, I was a film I also really enjoyed, but it's a completely different movie from this one. So um, yeah, yeah, for for American, especially if you're looking on Amazon, that can be a little bit difficult. That you're gonna have to sift through um, the you have to sift through the um, yeah, and I think that's probably the reason why it it wasn't. It, it didn't have the right uh, information on in terms of like because um, it, it looks like yeah it's available free on all these other sites to stream but it didn't show that in the IMDb because it was giving pulling up the information on the Ryan Gosling movie so um, yeah that's another issue probably that you you run into as you're looking for a, a, a good version of this but it's for for people that collect physical media this is definitely one to have in your collection yeah definitely and I will also say if anyone gets a chance to listen to the the DVD commentary, that's a lot of fun too. So they got um, the director, the head of Alpha Stunts, Dacascos and Kadeem Hardison on commentary. And they're just having a whale of a time in it. So it's, that's a lot of fun in itself. Yeah, I, I would be excited to check that out. Because I, I think it's one of the things for me, if the movie itself is really good, I don't mind watching it again with the commentary. It's almost like, you know, I want to see this movie again anyway. Um, I remember when my friends and I, when we watched uh, Black Dynamite the first time, we immediately watched it again with the commentary because uh, we enjoyed it so much. And I think um, this is one of those movies that you could watch without the commentary and watch again, you know, soon after with the commentary. And because it's just so, so great um, that it, it's such an exciting movie. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, you know, action fans will just will will eat it up if they've not seen it already. They'll they'll just really go for it. Yeah. yeah and I would almost say, too, because for me, it had been some time since I had seen it. So, you know, obviously I watched it for our, our podcast episode. I would say for people out there who haven't seen this in some time, watch it again, because uh, it's it doesn't disappoint. I think if you're you know, if you're looking through uh, streaming services on a Saturday night and you're, you know, you see like a bunch of Bruce Willis movies or something like that, or, you know, newer Seagal movies or something, you're like, oh, maybe I'll watch one of those, you know, because you hadn't seen it before. Consider just rewatching Drive. I think um, you might find you have a, a more fun evening doing that. Yeah, I think that would be a safe bet. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that's a good place to leave it. Um, so then, um, Tom, um, was there anything that you wanted to plug while while we're we're wrapping up? Uh, not at the moment. I think I've got one film coming out at the beginning of November, I believe, in the US, which is called the Area Fifty One Incident. So that's a bit of a sci-fi action, kind of in the the vein of Aliens, but without the budget. Um, and yeah, just anyone who hasn't checked out When Darkness Falls yet, that is, as we, as we said earlier, that's on Peacock now, Tubi, Amazon. I think it's on uh, Voodoo as well and Hoopla. And uh, yeah, possibly Roku as well. Yeah, and it's funny. So so Area 51 incident, um, oh, it does list it. Okay, so it, it, it didn't, when I, when I was looking up your, your um, profile on IMDb, it didn't seem like it came up there um under your the, your writing credits but then when i looked it up on um imdb it listed you as one of the writers um but yeah i guess because it, yeah they, oh, oh it's coming out november 1st so maybe that was why because um it, yeah it didn't have that um there but yeah i think um it seems like a lot of your of the of, of the um the vtv movies that you um that you write for they end up on like like tubi or something like that that you can um you can find them through there yeah, I think yeah, a lot of them do end up on um, Tubi. That seems to, that's a big platform really for uh, low budget independent films. So 
yeah, that's probably the main, the major one, as, along with Amazon. Yeah, yeah, and then I think early next year they're talking about potentially for Renegades coming out, which I think is um, definitely a highly anticipated one. The next uh, uh, one from uh, um, Shogun Films. Yep, yeah, there should be an announcement soon for the US release, and then uh, UK release will be yeah January. I think end of January next year. Yeah, so that one's going to be like yeah. I guess the the reverse of what um, when Darkness Falls, where when Darkness Falls was released in the U.S. first, and then um, it, does it have a U.K. release yet, or is it still just the U.S.? Uh, so when Darkness Falls, we're still looking for um, a U.K. distributor at the moment. Um, so that's probably going to be sorted out after AFM. So we're sort of taking the film to sales um, shortly. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have a few more territories tied up. Okay, right. well, so, so at least for, for US-based audiences, um, definitely, you know, you can stream uh, When Darkness Falls. Um, you can uh, also buy, right, you can buy physical media for it. I think it's um, available on Amazon and DVD as well. Uh, yeah, available on Amazon, and I believe it's region free as well. So you can actually buy it from the UK um you know via the us so you can kind of import it in and i think a few a few uk platforms have kind of already got copies in that they can so you don't have to sort of um wait three weeks for it to arrive yeah and i think when darkness falls you know as, as we're wrapping up here i think it's it's a movie that everybody should check out i i really enjoyed it and i think the thing i really like about when Darkness Falls, I mean, it's very different, obviously, from the movie we were just talking about with Drive, where, you know, When Darkness Falls is more of a slow burn. Um, but I think it's a, a really fantastic sort of, you know, you know slow burning uh, uh, thriller that it, it kind of builds on itself in a really organic way. But also, I think the combination of the way, you know, the, the story unfolds, the way that the, the, the characters uh, are developed, but also the way that the setting, um, the Scottish Highlands are used as almost like another character in the, in the film just really adds a, a depth to it that um, as we were talking about earlier with, you know, the sort of this uh, attempt to want to wash out the film and make it all one color, um, this film doesn't do that. And it really adds uh, an element to it that I think it, I really enjoyed. Yeah, well, um, thank you. That's good to hear. I think we, you know, we wanted to give it a sense of like three dimensions, really. And I think you can do that with, you know, plenty of colour in your film and just accentuating the, the depth of the, the countryside, really. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely one people, you know, so definitely here in the States, um, you know, and, you know, probably, you know, keep, because we'll probably, you know, be able to update you on the, on the site, like when, um, uh, when Darkness Falls is available in, in other markets, but at least for right now, um, that one's in the U.S. And so definitely everybody should check that out. Like you said, it's on on Tubi now. Um, it's uh, I know it's on Peacock. I think I think usually when it's on Tubi, it seems like most of the streamers pick it up um, here in the States. Yeah, that, that seems to be the way. Yeah, I think we're we're on most of the sort of the major ones now anyway. I think we're on the, the ones that we kind of... <laughs> the uh the ones we really want yeah yeah and i think like i said when i typed in started typing in when darkness falls in imdb i got midway through dark i got the d and the a when it auto filled for me and popped up which i think is 
really fantastic. I think, you know, there are some other movies that have a similar title, but the fact that it's going to pop up on IMDb um, definitely shows that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of hopefully you know, building some momentum. And I think, yeah, anybody listening, um, yeah, check out Drive, of course, but also check out When Darkness Falls. You could do a double feature on, on Tubi, for example, because uh, Drive is on Tubi as well. Yeah, that would make quite a double feature. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wonder which order. Yeah, because I wonder because you, you might um, for drive your, your brain might be velocitized from how I uh, think <laughs> drive it. So it might be better to do them in reverse and do uh, when darkness falls first if you're going to do double feature. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I would do it as well. Right. Well, and it's a, yeah. yeah, it's a nice pick me up as well after after a bit of a mystery thriller. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so it's a good a good double feature there. And you know, again, they're both on Tubi. Um, you know, they're they're less than the length to combine. They're less than the length of uh, of uh, Infinity War or um, the new Batman movie. So um, <laughs> yeah, so, so you can get two for the the price of one there as well. All right, excellent. Well, well, thank you again, uh, Tom, for coming on again. Um, the movie um, uh, that, that he has out is, is When Darkness Falls. Also, look for for Renegades next year, and then of course on on Flickering Myth. Um, look for for Tom's articles on there. But but thank you again for coming on. This was a really uh, really great conversation about a fantastic movie. Thanks a lot, Matt. I look forward to the next one. All right, absolutely. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.